The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data, Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss using technology to create great offline marketing experiences. Joining us is Justin Moss, who is the co-founder and chief experience creator at the Pineapple Agency, which is a boutique experiential marketing and creative events agency with big, bold clients. Their experiential marketing changes the game by giving their clients an unfair advantage of creating fans who can't wait to tell the world about their brands. And today, Justin and I are going to talk through the music industry vet's experience to the marketing playbook. Okay, here's my conversation with Justin Moss, founder and chief experience creator at the Pineapple Agency. Justin, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Very excited to have you on the show. Excited to talk a little music, a little marketing. You're an ex-rock and roller. You worked in the music industry and created a playbook out of it. Tell us a little bit about your background first and foremost, and we'll get into some of the things that you learned working in a different industry. Absolutely. Love to. And so I do talk a lot. So make sure you shut me up when you need me to. We got an editor. We'll take care of it. <laughs> I, uh, I started in the music industry back in high school, actually, 22 years ago, producing raves, underground raves, and then moving into concerts. And then I was at the forefront of producing multi-day music festivals. My first music festival was in 2002, and it was five stages, over 75 artists, everybody from Outkast to Stone Temple Pilots. A little music festival called Coachella? <laughs> no. Coachella launched a little bit before us, but yeah, that was what we're, our goal was to become the next Coachella. <laughs> what was the name of the event? It was called Beyond uh, 2002 Extreme Sports Music Festival. Awesome. So I am a recovering music entrepreneur myself. I know everybody that listens to this podcast regularly has heard this story, but I ran a guitar lesson website after realizing I wasn't going to be a singer songwriter. And it was my first entrepreneurial venture. I learned a ton about failure from running strum school, what not to do as a first time founder. You were a little bit more successful than I was working in the music industry. Tell me about some of the things that you learn from the music industry in terms of the marketing playbook. I think starting in the music industry, especially at a young age, I started because I loved partying, going to concerts. True statement. I love partying. That's how all the ravers start. You have figured me out. <laughs> 
But the truth be told, very quickly, I realized that I loved bringing the people together for what you were ultimately producing, whether it was a 500-person event or a 100,000-person music festival. You were giving so many people joy for what you did. From a marketing standpoint, I learned very quickly that at least when I first started, it was about the artist. It was about that emotional connection between the artist that the fan was going to see and what you were creating. So how can you package that up and sell that to a consumer? Because let's be real, you know, when I got my start, we weren't booking Stone Temple Pilots. We were booking no names, local artists, and you had to tell that story. So I was able to tell that story pretty good. I had some failures, absolutely. I've had some successes, but ultimately it brought me to where I am today. So what I'm hearing and just trying to put this in marketing speak is that A, a lot of what you were doing was community building, right? You have to get tens to hundreds of thousands of people with like interests at the same place at the same time. And a lot of what you were focusing on was essentially product marketing, where you're taking an artist and you're trying to build a brand and a connection between that product, even though it's a person, an artist, a you know music creator, to try to build affinity and drive conversions. So talk to me about the actual playbook here. When you're going from booking small venues You mentioned you had some successes and some failures and all the way up to running multi-day, tens of thousands of people, giant events. What's the playbook there? Are there similarities between the small and the big or just one same playbook? There's a lot of similarities. I wouldn't say it's the same playbook, but essentially you're telling the consumer a story. You're taking them on a journey of what they're going to experience that night or that weekend. You're telling that story from the perspective of, yeah, you may have seen this artist before, but it may be a different show, may be a different venue. But ultimately, I always use the kind of analogy that going out and buying a bottle of water or toothpaste is not easy for a marketer to tell a consumer to do that or try to get them to do that. But you need a bottle of water, you need water, you need toothpaste, you're going to go and get it. But to get someone and market to them to physically get off their butt and get out of the house and go to an event, whether it's a concert or an activation, is totally different. And you have to show them and like I said, tell that story of why they should do it. And back in the day, we did a lot of radio, we did a lot of hand-to-hand flyers, you know, street team kind of guerrilla stuff. But today, it's a whole different ballgame with the digital world and how we communicate with the consumer. But more than that, we have to cut through the clutter of all the other content that's out there, as well as all the other events that we're competing with. From food festivals to concerts, you're competing to take that same money and have them put it towards your event or your concert or your activation. So whether it be passing out flyers or some of the guerrilla marketing tactics that you tried to today focusing more on digital marketing, walk me through how you're thinking about targeting to find the right person who is actually showing an affinity towards the type of artist that you're interested in. Well, today, what we try to do is we try to get the consumer to be a brand ambassador for the event or for the brand that we're working with. So I relate experiential marketing and how we market an activation for a brand like Under Armour the same way we would market a concert. We want to cut through the clutter of content. We want to target a consumer that either likes that style of music, likes that particular artist, 
has particular buying patterns from fashion to music to food. So once we know and find those targets, we can then not market to them, but we try to market with them and we try to engage them in the strategy so that not only are they talking to us, but they're talking to the other fans, the other consumers. And we're creating this, like you said earlier, community that the fan has buy-in. And so the buy-in makes them want to buy a ticket, makes them want to leave their house. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, what goes through my head when you're talking about targeting here for different types of music is you have to pick up ethnographic signals where I'm going to generalize and stereotype the hip hop kids are hanging out at the mall and the grunge kids are hanging out at the bowling alley. So if you're handing out flyers, you need to be at the right place to find the highest density of people that are most likely going to be interested in your music. You have to profile a little bit yeah. to figure out how you're going to target. And today, maybe it's a little different, but people that like burritos might be interested in a certain type of music and people that like steaks are interested in another you're taking those signals because not everybody is broadcasting that they're a fan of an individual brand or type of music. Once you have a sense of how you're going to approach and try to find who your target audience is, talk to me about creating a message and what's the strategy for not only making people aware of the event, getting them off their butt, as you said, and through the door. Well, we normally start with some sort of teaser campaign. Let's use the example of a festival, a music festival. So when we work or create a music festival, we create a theme around that festival. What is the theme going to be that the consumer is going to see? What is the theme going to be for the customer journey experience on site? So we start with a teaser campaign where we're announcing that theme, we're announcing the date. And then once we collect all the data, whether it's data points digitally of the products they're buying or places that they're hanging out that we can target, Maybe it's a hip-hop club. Maybe it's a store in a mall that sells urban clothing or rock and roll clothing or whatever the demographic we're going for. We geo-target those places. So we actually can use their own social media handles, for instance, to target them at any given time during the day and send them direct messages. And our whole goal with doing this is we need them to sign up to our database somehow. So we can keep sending them data and content all we want, but that's not going to guarantee they're going to buy a ticket or come to the event. So what we need to do is we need to get them to start having a conversation with us one way or another. So that could be signing them up for a contest, signing them up for some sort of survey where they can win a prize, win tickets. We sometimes ask fans for their feedback on what artists they want to see or how they want the venue to be set up. All different ways that we can collect data and contact information to constantly communicate with them. So the thing that pops into my head when you're talking about this is you're doing as much lead capture as you can. So actually, it's kind of similar to a B2B model of marketing where you're building some awareness, you're building some enthusiasm for not necessarily your product, but the genre in general. And then you're asking for user feedback. And if somebody's going to give you your, your their contact information, they're essentially self-selecting into the direct response type marketing. When you think about concerts and maybe festivals specifically, what do you do with the leads and how do you actually get that many people through the door? 
we really focus on the experience. So the experience that the festival goer or the concert goer is going to have. There's a lot of different sides to the music industry. And what I mean by that is if the Foo Fighters go on tour, they're going to sell the majority of their tickets to their fan base, no matter what. They hear the Foo Fighters are going on tour, they're going to go. A music festival that just starts out, that has no name, just launching in the middle of a field, you have to intrigue the consumer on what the experience is going to be. You need models and bikinis, you need Ja Rule, and you need islands that used to be run by drug runners. <laughs> and it worked perfectly. <laughs> Almost worked perfectly. And for anybody that hasn't seen the Fry Festival documentary on Netflix, go watch it. And it's a great example of wonderful marketing and terrible product execution. Absolutely. They failed miserably on the execution. But to your point, that's marketing today. You're capturing and creating an experience, and then you're just telling that story to the fan. So that was a more direct way I was going to tell a story, but that's exactly what it is. We're telling the fan, the consumer, what they're going to get, what they're going to experience, and they believe that that's what they're going to get. So they buy a ticket. But you look at well-established festivals, like we work on a festival called Electric Daisy Carnival. It's 164,000 people a day in Las Vegas. We're a very small part of that production. However, they sold out this year in four hours. It's the 22nd year. They have not announced one single artist. So that's an example of the fan is buying a ticket before they know the artist because of the experience they know they're going to get. I'm going to disagree with you politely and say that's an example of the aftermarket knowing that the resale value for those tickets is going to be higher than what the regular value is. So everybody gobbles up the tickets before they know who the band is because the people that actually want to see the bands and have the experience are going to buy the tickets no matter what they're priced. I will agree that the aftermarket is a horrible thing. That's just economics. It's not bad. Yeah, it is truthful. However, there has been more recent technologies in place, especially for festivals that help that aftermarket not be as successful than as a concert. Yeah, because you have to know who's actually going to make sure that they're somebody that you want in the event. Exactly. And your wristbands, for instance, are personalized with RFID technology. It does exist. Absolutely. But to the point is, it's about the experience that they're buying. Whereas 20 years ago, you couldn't sell a single ticket without announcing an artist because the fan just didn't believe in experiences that way. Makes sense. So I think the last part of the puzzle here is you're building an experience. You're talking about what the expectation for the customer is. Then they actually show up to the event and a lot of the marketing that helps drive things like the Electric Daisy Carnival is you have your consumers as ambassadors actually reflecting that the experience is what they wanted. I went to Coachella, obviously, before I had children, and <laughs> we're posting Instagram showing what a magical experience it was. Even if it was a total train wreck, I probably would have showed the Instagram photos because I wanted people to see that I was experiencing what Coachella is supposed to be about. I did have a wonderful time. Talk to me about how you're creating the ambassadors and starting to build essentially the flywheel that markets your event over and over again. So we start thinking about the entire user experience and their journey. 
everything from the ticket buying part to when they walk through the gates to when they leave. So we start off by creating a lot of Instagrammable moments, obviously, in this digital age. And that allows shareable moments. And that allows the attendees community to for either have fear of missing out, so they interact or they're with them and their content is being shown to the world and to their friends. And so you're creating these smaller communities. As far as interacting with the consumer, once again, there's all sorts of strategies that we deploy. One is a lot of contests. So what kind of entertainment does the consumer want to see? What kind of ticket giveaways can we do? Can we tie it to some sort of nonprofit? And then, of course, after the fan leaves, we market to them about the experience. So if there were things that they might have missed, we try to market and show them those experiences or those artists so that you're constantly keeping the festival brand top of mind throughout the year. So you're doing little touch points for them of, hey, remember when you saw, I'll use Foo Fighters as an example again, Foo Fighters on stage five. Do you remember when you took your Instagrammable moment and posted it and an influencer tagged you? So there's all sorts of ways to keep the brand top of mind and user-generated content is definitely, definitely key to a successful after strategy of the festival. So having gone through the experience of learning the music industry first before starting an agency, what are some of the things that you can take away from your experience working in music, working to promote artists and events that you think are applicable to other marketing channels? So I was really lucky that I understood how to produce an experience coming from the music industry. And once I started in experiential marketing, it was pretty easy for me to identify similarities. And the biggest similarity with experiential marketing and marketing of a music or concert or festival was you're appealing to the same emotional connection. The only difference is we're not appealing to an artist or an experience necessarily. You're appealing to the emotional connection between a consumer and a brand. So now you have to figure out ways to still cut through the clutter of all the other content on the internet, all the other marketing strategies like TV, at a home, other events. And you're trying to make the consumer an ambassador for a brand like a sneaker brand or a bottle of water. So it's not as sexy. It's not as passionate as somebody is about an artist or a concert. So how do we do that? And so there's a lot of similarities and experiential marketing, in my opinion, not only is gaining a lot more momentum and a lot more advertising dollars are going to experiential marketing, but I believe that brands that aren't doing experiential marketing are definitely losing out and may risk not being around at some point. Yeah, I think that the trend that we're seeing is that a consumers are oversaturated with advertising. There's impressions everywhere you go. And I have talked a lot about how important content marketing is and content not just being, you know, blog posts, but videos and your social media content and really the way that you're engaging your consumers without actually advertising to them. And experiential marketing is a medium which I think plays right into that theme where the more that you're able to build in memorable moments and points of differentiation and be creative, 
the deeper and more lasting the relationship you're going to have with those consumers. Correct. And what we really enjoy and are passionate about with experiential marketing is creating that experience, but not always having the brand first, like other marketing strategies. When a brand creates a TV commercial, as it should be, it's about that brand. It's about that product. Sometimes when we're creating an experience, it is about that brand, but it's not always front and center. Sometimes it's more on that little subtle nuances or little subtle content plays that we're showing the consumer that we're engaging you, we're talking to you, we're not marketing at you. And I think in this day and age, with the clutter of marketing and all the content, but also just our way of thinking as humans these days, you know? So I think that marketing with versus marketing at has been a big win for us in experiential marketing. I think that's great advice. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how to use experiences to market to your consumers when we continue this conversation tomorrow. So that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Justin Moss, founder and chief experience creator at the Pineapple Agency for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we're going to publish tomorrow, Justin is going to tell us how you can drive revenue through offline experiences. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Justin, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can find his company on Instagram. Their handle is The Pineapple Agency, T-H-E-P-I-N-E-A-P-P-L-E-A-G-E-N-C-Y. Or you could visit their website, which is wearepineapple.co. Just one link in our show notes that I'd like to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, head over to martechpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes, the contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our once a week newsletter. You can even send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you could always reach out on social media. Our handle is martechpod, M-A-R-T-E-C-H-P-O-D on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or you can also contact me directly. My handle is benjshaw. B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, in addition to part two of our conversation with Justin Moss, founder and chief experience creator at the Pineapple Agency, we're going to publish an episode every day this year. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.